You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. Unfortunately, my co-host Prashant Parmeswaran can't be here today, so this episode will include a very special guest. Joining me today is Danny Russell. Danny is Vice President for International Security and Diplomacy at the Asia Society Policy Institute here in New York City. A career member of the Senior Foreign Service at the U.S. Department of State, Danny most recently served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Prior to his appointment as Assistant Secretary on July 12, 2013, almost exactly six years ago, Danny served at the White House as a Special Assistant to President Obama and on the National Security Council as Senior Director for Asian Affairs. He played an important role in the formation of the Obama administration's Pivot to Asia or Rebalance Strategy. Danny, thanks a lot for joining me today on the Asia Geopolitics Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Ankit. Great. It's really great to have you. Uh, Prashant and I, my usual co-host, have actually uh, spent some time on this podcast that's been going now for five years. And I recall back in the day, we would actually talk about your activities and your official capacity. So it's very nice to have sort of a living piece of, um, you know, Obama administration era Asia policy on the Asia Geopolitics podcast with us. So I really uh, do appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, the rebalance, the rebalance lives in, in Danny Russell. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, I, think, um, I think that's pretty apparent. Um, so th- the reason we have you on the podcast today is to talk about your recent effort at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Uh, so you and your team have just put out a report on the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, and I suspect most of our listeners are acquainted with the basics of what BRI is, so I won't go into that kind of fundamental Um, And the report is really a breath of fresh air. Uh, There's a lot of these sorts of reports that have been coming out from uh, Western think tanks recently talking about BRI. And it's a breath of fresh air in the sense that it's largely prescriptive for Chinese officials. And I'll include a link to the report in the podcast description so our listeners can go and follow up and and read it for themselves if they're interested. But I wanted to uh, begin by just asking you if you could tell us a bit about the genesis of this project that you undertook and led at the Asia Society Policy Institute. What what sort of led ASPE to focus on the BRI and take this sort of a very heavy-handed prescriptive approach? Well, I was, you know, intrigued by the debate about the Belt and Road Initiative and somewhat troubled, frankly, by the uh, conflicting in- analyses and interpretations of it. It struck me that it's something of a of an inkblot test, a Rorschach test, where the the way that people perceived the BRI typically said more about their attitude towards China than it did about the initiative itself. You know, and you have people viewing it as this uh, wonderful 21st century Silk Road uniting the Eurasian continent in a network of trade and energy routes, connectivity. You have other people looking at it as a neo-colonial form of uh, spheres of influence via state capitalism. So it was kind of Manichaean uh, in the first instance, so I was intrigued. Secondly, you know, I come to this as a recovering government official, as a policymaker, as a diplomat. And I'd been on the receiving end of more blue ribbon reports than you could shake a stick at. And by and large, I, as a government official, as a pra- policy practitioner, uh, I seldom found them usable yet, let alone useful. Um, you know, there were prescriptions always at the end about buy low, sell high, you know, do good, 
make the other guy stop hating you. And that's just not useful. It's not actionable. And related to that also was just the perception that this sort of clash of images surrounding Belt and Road uh, was not only not constructive, but it wasn't necessarily rooted in reality. And I set out to try to explore it a bit and separate fact from fiction uh, just for my own edification. Uh, and having done that, um, just my natural bent was to see if I couldn't identify uh, some practical, actionable suggestions or recommendations. Or when I began, I thought I would perhaps find some best practices that I could lift up and encourage uh, the, the Chinese uh, decision makers and implementers to sort of do more of the right thing. Mm -hmm. And because the world's a big place and Belt and Road is a huge initiative, I decided to zero in on uh, the ASEAN 10 countries, Southeast Asia, sort of a microcosm of, you know, developed and less developed countries, uh, countries that, if nothing else, uh, you know, were no strangers to China. They all have a lot of coping mechanisms. They all have a lot of experience. And I figured, hey, if uh, countries that know China best uh, run into big problems, you know, imagine the struggle that far-flung regions like Africa and elsewhere have in, in, in dealing with uh, China. And so we looked at financing, we looked at labor, we looked at environment, we looked at uh, kind of the local stakeholder engagement, uh, we looked at the issue of corruption, uh, and I was lucky enough to put together a kind of brain trust of experts in various fields to sort of help guide me on what I should be looking at what I should be looking for, uh, what it meant, how to interpret it, and, and that sort of thing. And I came away with a number of sort of findings, frankly, and conclusions. And from that, uh, I, I, over time, I was able to build out some prescriptions, not as the kind of high-handed, you know, Westerner telling the Chinese what to do, but with a lot of sympathy as a you know, somebody who had a considerable number of years in government responsible for coordinating and implementing policies uh, and who was hungry for, you know, advice and news and suggestions and recommendations that were actionable, that were, uh, new, you know, usable. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found very interesting that in your introductory letter uh, to the report, you identified five premises. Um, and I think these premises are actually quite a productive place to start thinking about the BRI. And I'll just summarize them for our listeners uh, really briefly. Um, so the BRI meets demand for infrastructure that exists in Asia and elsewhere. The BRI is here to stay. The BRI is big enough that improvements to its standards will be a big deal for the BRI in the future. That Chinese initiatives generally move from sort of amorphous slogans to more structured programs. And finally, that BRI's costs end up, uh, will end up likely posing a problem for China in the long term. And of course, we're recording this podcast just right after the latest quarterly GDP numbers came out from China, showing the slowest growth rate quarterly since the early 1990s, 6.2%. Um, but 
you know, as you were writing the report, I assume that you began with these premises, and then as you sort of embarked on your journey exploring the BRI and talking to, as you said, your brain trust of experts, did you sort of come back to any of these premises and sort of rethink what they were saying about BRI, or did you find that these still generally held and are still a productive sort of five pillars to use to think about the BRI and its future? I thought, frankly, they were reinforced by uh, the things that I found. I mean, there is a a huge appetite for uh, infrastructure investment, including from China. And while there have been a lot of problems and there is a a great deal of trepidation on the part of host countries, uh, they are trying to figure out ways that they can accept the investment, accept the projects uh, while protecting their sovereignty and and sort of mitigating or minimizing the downside risks. no, they're not in the just say no motif. Um, something that I felt even more strongly after reconnoitering around uh, some of the Southeast Asian countries and looking at and learning more about their projects was that um, you can't beat something with nothing. And for all of its vaunted talk about the Build Act and free and open Indo-Pacific, et cetera, uh, notwithstanding very significant amounts of overseas development aid by the U.S. and by Japan, uh, notwithstanding the uh, quality infrastructure initiative by Japan, et cetera. The fact of the matter is that BRI, by and large, is up against pretty close to nothing. There is no really comparable option for most developing countries, in part because the World Bank has gradually skewed away from investments in the least developed countries uh, and in part because the rigor that the World Bank and that uh, many Western governments apply in evaluating projects and designing them and so on is more than the local governments in the developing world can can handle. Uh, so um, I think these premises help. There's a sixth premise that I was a little too careful to actually put into print, which is that, and something that I've learned from my own diplomatic experience, namely that China, the Chinese leadership is in fact quite sensitive to international criticism. And the sort of reputational lever is a device for um, moving China. And while uh, obviously, criticism and pressure can backfire in dealing with China. Um, I thought that there, it was worth testing the proposition that uh, China would be hungry for uh, ways that they could, within reason, um, mitigate much of the international criticism, or at least um, raise questions among the, you know, potentially open-minded countries that, BRI was not this sort of diabolical plot for global domination that it is often made out to be in in the West. Mm -hmm. And I think we saw direct evidence of that, at least last year at the BOAO Forum for Asia, uh, President Xi's opening speech. I think he specifically pushed back at that notion. That, at least in my memory, is one of the first kind of high-level moments when Xi Jinping himself said that we don't have ulterior geopolitical motives. I think they reinforced that again at the Shangshan Forum and other sort of high-level fora. I just want to you know circle back a bit on your on your point about demand and lack of alternatives. Um, 
didn't Japan really write the book on strategic overseas development assistance in, in Asia and, and specifically in Southeast Asia? And they've seen quite a bit of success employing that strategically. So I'm wondering, uh, in the course of your research, uh, I know this wasn't the focus of the project, but how did you find these Southeast Asian countries sort of viewing uh, Japan's role? Obviously, Japan is currently in decline in many ways, but it does continue to be very active in the overseas development assistance space in Asia. Well, it won't come as a surprise to anybody who's had experience in Southeast Asia that uh, at one level, some of the countries in the region are licking their chops at the uh, opportunity to start, a, in effect, a bidding war between right. Japan and China over who is going to win the honor of providing the, the bridge or the high-speed rail or the soccer stadium, etc. And, uh, you know, the countries concerned are uh, not averse and not without skill in exploiting that. Now, what China is doing through BRI is not overseas development. Um, this is almost shockingly disconnected with the aid or the traditional uh, government-directed assistance to developing countries that uh, the U.S., J Japan, uh, other Western countries actively practice. And then China does to some degree. There's not only little or no correlation between overseas development from Beijing and Belt and Road initiatives, but um, I at one point saw some figures that strongly suggested that there was virtually no overseas development assistance by China to Belt and Road countries. Now, of course, Japanese companies and uh, sort of public-private Japanese infrastructure investment uh, initiatives are pretty significant and extensive throughout uh, throughout Southeast Asia. But uh, here too, some of the flaws of BRI are perceived as virtues in the eyes of the Southeast Asian beholders. And that's probably true more broadly in the developing world. Namely, you know, your doorbell rings and the Chinese construction company equivalent of an Avon sales lady says, here's what I've got for you. You know, I'm going to build you a big, beautiful fill in the blank um, facility, uh, railway, uh, stadium, uh, free trade zone, you know, industrial park, whatever. I'm going to here's the financing Here's the blueprints. Here's what it's going to look like. I can start tomorrow. Uh, Chinese companies are very good at engineering. They are very fast. And they've come with the money. Uh, now, there are all sorts of problems associated with that money. Uh, quite apart from the strings attached, uh, the fact is that they're often hawking a project that is vastly overpriced. Uh, they are often uh, selling something on a scale that a small developing country like Laos, for example, just couldn't possibly afford. And that leads down the road to all kinds of problems, uh, environmental problems, financial sustainability problems, corruption problems, etc. But for the, for the purchaser in a developing country, uh, the idea that I can get this project, I don't have to go through a lot of laborious uh, planning about what our needs are and uh, 
what the long-term environmental implications are. This is quick, you know, wham, bam. And it's, it seems in the, on the front end, uh, eminently affordable. That's a pretty powerful marketing uh, device. And now China, now that Belt and Road is beginning to mature, uh, is contending with the the consequences and the the after effects the after effects of that um, approach. Many many of the problems that we diagnosed are directly or indirectly attributable to this wild headlong rush on the part of the Chinese to get to yes, you know, sign on the bottom line, um, and the leapfrogging over the due diligence over the the serious project planning over the needs assessment uh, over how a project would integrate into sort of other parts of the um, social or economic development plan in a given country uh, and leapfrogging over authentic environmental and social impact assessments. And as a result in the, you know, in the short term, you have a number of, projects that have been delayed, have stalled out, stopped, or in the case of Myanmar or in the case of Malaysia, uh, have been radically renegotiated uh, and not to, uh, not to China's favor. So there's a lot of um, corner cutting. I think that it seemed pretty clear that there are some longer-term time bombs embedded in some of the BRI projects, and those are environmental problems that take years to surface, um, but that are going to be, in some cases, very problematic and raise the question of what kind of liability, either straight-up uh, legal or financial liability or political liability, uh, will be laid at China's doorstep. You know, one of the other conclusions that I reached is that China takes a very laissez-faire approach to uh, the responsibilities of the host country um, under the guise of, uh, you know, non-interference in another country's affair. And what that means is that while a project in China, a domestic project, would be pretty strictly controlled in terms of stakeholder engagement or environmental review. Uh, there would be a complaint mechanism uh, for sort of disgruntled villagers. The Chinese would presumably in their anti-corruption campaign be pretty alert to um, bid padding and bribery and so on. Um, this, the identical uh, infrastructure facility, dam or port or whatever, built uh, in somebody else's country, hey, that's another story entirely. And while it's, it may well be technically true that the real responsibility for making sure that displaced villagers get compensation and that uh, anti-bribery rules are upheld, etc., rests with the local authorities, a lot of the countries where BRI projects are being conducted don't have uh, strong institutions or good governance mm -hmm. systems. And uh, the Chinese developers and maybe uh, others in the Chinese system uh, seem to turn a blind eye, if not actually profit from that. Um, well, so when you took 
you know, all of these, um, all of these sort of technical recommendations and best practices and sort of th deeper thinking about the, about the possible liabilities in the future, as you said, when you took these and you presented them to your Chinese interlocutors, how were these ideas received? Because as you noted that, you know, the Chinese do have a degree of sensitivity, at least on the reputational side, when BRI is talked about as a geostrategic that, but, but many of these technical criticisms, I feel like, are, are sort of a genre separate from that broader discussion that happens in terms of BRI as a geopolitical grand plan. So when you presented these ideas in China, how were they taken? Well, I tried to formulate the recommendations. I mean, the findings were the findings, but the, the recommendations, uh, to the extent possible, were um, formulated in a constructive way as, as practical remedies. And uh, you'll see if you looking at the report that I tried to be explicit, uh, not only about what the international benchmark was, and not only trying to find precedents within uh, China domestically for how they do it, uh, and um, policies and procedures uh, at home in China that um, would yield better outcomes overseas. Um, but I tried to show what's in it for them. You know, how will this lead to better outcomes that China cares about? How will this sort of mitigate risks and uh, reduce political backlash in, in uh, the BRI countries, et cetera? So I, I combine that, I think, with what are some pretty basic diplomatic uh, principles, which is to uh, pass up the opportunity to wrap my report in a brick and throw it through Xi Jinping's window. This was not presented as an attack on China, an attack on BRI. Uh, it was laid out as steps that are within China's power to take uh, that would have clear benefits both for China and for the uh, project country. The other thing that I did, Anke, again, this is Diplomacy 101, is that I chose my moment uh, a month or so before the scheduled second Belt and Road Forum. And I brought the findings and the recommendations informally, the preliminary ones, uh, to Beijing quietly, uh, long before I issued the report publicly. And I met uh, serially with a wide range of Chinese stakeholders, beginning with the NDRC, with the people who have perhaps the, the greatest uh, uh, direct responsibility uh, for right. Belt and Road, um, explain to them what I found, why, um, and in a non-threatening environment, allow them to begin to digest the practical recommendations. Um, and I took this around to the finance ministry, foreign ministry, um, MOFCOM, uh, to China Exim Bank, and some of the other uh, policy banks, and so on. And so, and so I socialized it in a way that perhaps suggested that, uh, A, this was not coming in as an attack on China, even though it was highly critical, as the Chinese themselves acknowledge. Uh, and B, that it was not going to be a surprise because no one after their sixth birthday really likes to be surprised. And that's doubly true for government officials and it's triply true for government officials in a uh, authoritarian state. 
Right. Um, so I want to I want to sort of end the BRI discussion before we move on to a second topic. I want to talk to you about what's sort of a tough question about um, the Obama administration area. So um, I, at the time in 2015, you know, writing in my capacity as a private citizen, I was quite critical of the way in which the administration handled the launch of the AIIB, specifically mm-hmm. the the decision by American allies to sign up. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, reading your report, I was just wondering if you had sort of in hindsight the same kind of misgivings that I did about the AIB and whether the U.S. might have played that in a in a more productive way and sort of gotten its foot in the door. I'd be really curious about your perspectives from what was going on back then to where the AIB has now come in mid-2019. Right. Well, I saw the arc of the development of the AIB as something of a model for what we collectively, by we I mean the West, uh, ought to want uh, BRI to evolve uh, towards because in fairness uh, the AIIB initiative at the very early stages was uh, an opaque uh, Chinese mystery initiative where countries were being asked to sign a, essentially a blank piece of paper by a pig and a poke that China was purporting to solve uh, a problem that others didn't see and create an institution, an Asian development bank that already existed. And there was every reason to be suspicious that in fact, this was simply uh, going to be an instrument of Chinese national policy, that it was going to be the, you know, the China uh, infrastructure investment bank. and not a bona fide multilateral uh, effort, and certainly not something that adhered to the kinds of standards that uh, have evolved in the World Bank or the ADB and elsewhere. And my argument to the Chinese at the time was that the starting point for any new multilateral bank needs to be the high watermark of what, to date, the other best uh, multilateral banks have achieved. Now, there was a lot of debate uh, internally in the U.S. and with our partners about whether joining and reforming from within was a good strategy, let alone a better strategy than holding back and making China prove its bona fides and and its commitment to standards and rules and so on. Um, There never was a question about the United States joining AIIB. Congress we, we have trouble getting appropriations for the international banks that we already belong <laughs> to. We were never going to get the money. Um, without a doubt, uh, the administration flubbed the messaging. And we allowed a narrative to uh, take hold that asserted that the U.S. in a kind of mean-spirited way was trying to you know, exterminate and block and and uh, keep people away from uh, AIIB. That was highly exaggerated, but it, but it nevertheless became the perceived truth. And that was unfortunate. I think though the, the analogy and the connection to uh, the BRI is not like, should we, should we join, should we have joined? But what uh, suite of actions, what concert of countries, what sort of set of messages can propel the BRI uh, up from the many questionable 
practices and the lack of standards uh, to follow that incremental improvement, improving trajectory that the AIIB took and brought it to where it is today, which is as a sort of highly, you know, a AAA rated, uh, credible uh, multilateral infrastructure bank. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think we'll close the discussion on BRI there. Uh, Danny, thanks a lot for sharing perspectives on your report. Again, I'll recommend that uh, listeners at least uh, take the time to uh, flip through the report. I'll include a link to that in the description so you can go ahead and uh, take a look at that. But uh, Danny, it's not every day that I have a uh, former Assistant Secretary for East Asian and Pacific Affairs on the podcast. So I wanted to sort of take advantage of this opportunity to talk to you about a little bit newsier of a topic, which is the ongoing crisis between Japan and South Korea, two of our most important allies in Northeast Asia. Uh, We actually devoted the last episode of the podcast to this very issue, so if listeners need sort of a primer on where the dispute comes from, which again, for reasons of time, I'm not going to go back over in this discussion, I'd recommend listening to that. Uh, But Danny, um, so uh, David Stilwell, who uh, now has your old job and is the first uh, Senate-confirmed official to have that job in a non-acting capacity uh, since the Trump administration came into office, um, is in the region. He was just in Tokyo. He will be going to Seoul after his uh, brief trip to the Philippines. But the United States, it seems like, is not going to play a role in mediating trilaterally. And that's not surprising. America has been reticent to do that in disputes between Seoul and Tokyo in the past for good reason. But I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, if if you had to sort of give advice to anybody listening to this podcast uh, at the State Department today or perhaps at the NSC, um, what would your sort of advice be to a, uh, a budding sort of American diplomat looking to sort of talk down our two allies from the brink in this crisis that's sort of of an, of an unprecedented nature in the sense that the economic relationship between the two of them is really at the core of the stakes here? Wow. Well, look, uh, you know, Dave Stilwell is coming in after a two and a, two and a half year uh, gap uh, where we've only had acting and uh, senior bureau officials and s- sort of uh, great people, but not uh, not people in the position of assistant secretary and not people who are perceived as having uh, the full uh, authority and confidence of the president of the United States. And that's uh, a huge challenge and a huge handicap for Dave. And I, uh, you know, I'm deeply sympathetic and I certainly wish him well. There, There's no quick fix. There is no um, dose of penicillin that uh, he or the U.S. can administer to Japan and Korea to cure this uh, serious downward uh, spiral is sort of toxic uh, series of uh, slaps uh, between the, the two capitals. It is hugely serious. It's immensely destructive. It uh, is compromising uh, U.S. national security and economic interests. We're in a sort of recreating the Turkey-Greece schism in NATO you know, during the Cold War. Um, the world really can't afford this, and the United States in particular can't afford it. Um, but it's not a new phenomenon. It is simply that the wheels have come off, that the bottom seems to have fallen out. And I think that it is in no small measure attributable to the lack of confidence in the United States. Uh, the tremendous uncertainty 
uh, in the region in general and in uh, allied capitals in particular about America's orientation, about America's uh, dependability, about uh, the unilateralist uh, trend in uh, US policy. Um, remember, America first is not exactly a rallying cry uh, to give confidence to our allies, particularly uh, with accusations about freeloading and uh, muttering about withdrawing U.S. troops and so on. Uh, so we, I think, are looking at a, a very uh, anxiety-laden and uh, an unstable uh, environment right now. Uh, combined with a number of other factors, uh, political, historical, and others, that are allowing this sort of conflagration to escalate. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, it is not that the U.S. should uh, mediate. And Dave Stowell was not incorrect uh, to point this out. But, you know, this is a tough business, this um, uh, diplomacy stuff. <laughs> and it's, you know, clearly been interpreted as America doesn't have a stake in this issue, uh, doesn't have, uh, is, is not seized with uh, the problem. You know, Obama, the, I mean, for Obama and for the Obama administration, and for me in particular, uh, trying to uh, contain friction between our two important allies in Northeast Asia and Japan and Korea, uh, trying to accelerate the, the painfully slow uh, accretion of confidence, willingness to collaborate, to cooperate, um, which was a high priority uh, for security reasons in the first instance. Um, this this was not a matter of mediation. It was a matter of moderation that uh, the Obama administration and, and President Obama himself, who twice hosted trilateral summits with the Korean and Japanese leader and who sort of fostered an environment that inhibited this kind of retaliatory uh, knee-jerk nationalism that created a strong sense of common strategic interests. Uh, we create, we helped to build, and we certainly fed uh, the factors and the forces that pushed back against the, you know, instinct to lash out. Uh, that generated uh, some confidence and political and strategic rationale for taking a certain amount of risk and not seizing every opportunity to take the most politically advantageous uh, position of attacking uh, the Japanese or attacking uh, the South Koreans. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's a lot of work. And the, the critical factor, I'd say two critical factors, one was that this policy and this effort was unmistakably owned by the president of the United States. No one in Tokyo or Seoul uh, questioned for a moment 
that when I came or when John Kerry uh, came and made our case that um, the U.S. government wasn't speaking with a single voice, that this wasn't uh, President Obama. Um, but secondly, that we made the case always on the basis of our own rightful interest, our equity in the Japan-Korea relationship. Mm -hmm. So the inability of uh, the you know Japanese and South Korean troops, uh, militaries to share information, the, the sort of uh, asymmetry in terms of who could get what for a variety of reasons there, the lack of connectivity at a moment when all of us were challenged very directly by North Korea's growing nuclear missile program, when all of us recognized the need to contribute to regional confidence and stability as China's massive military modernization um, project uh, unfolded, um, that is the strongest basis for us to make the argument. It's not time out, stop hitting your sister, don't kick him under the table. It's we have an we have an equity here. We have a right to have a view. And by the way, we have a collective, we have a shared interest. And uh, just as you have faith in the United States commitment to regional stability, to Northeast Asia, peace and security, um, we need to have faith that Japan and Korea uh, will and can cooperate on critical security issues. Now we see the, not only are they not able to cooperate on security issues, but this uh, battle is spilling over into the economic sphere. Mm -hmm. Well, Danny, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me today on the show. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today, but you know, I'd be very happy to have you back on the show to talk about uh, any number of other issues related to U.S.-Asia policy. So really, uh, thanks for taking the time today. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Anke. I appreciate it. Great, and uh, we'll hope you'll be back soon. For listeners, uh, thanks for listening to the Asia Geopolitics podcast. If you like what you heard on this discussion and you'd like to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. You can do that on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers. And finally, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a rating on any of these services, please do so. It really helps get the word out about the show. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics podcast was brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.